This is an ABC podcast. Okay, get ready. Besides friction, I'm Natasha Mitchell, and it is getting crowded in here. In fact, they tell me it is a complete sellout. More than 500 tickets snapped up. They've had to move to a way bigger venue. Such is the excitement. And as the anticipation builds, backstage, remembering their lines, doing star jumps to deal with their nerves, are actually, what are these scientists doing here? This is not their natural habitat. So my name's Luke Stella. I'm a PhD candidate and a science communicator at the University of New South Wales. And I just love seeing science in places where it's not normally expected. So yeah, that's me. Hello and welcome to the first ever Steam Room! We're at the Factory Theatre for the Sydney Comedy Festival this week. Let me hear you say... Ooh, it's steamy up in here. Hello, we are Scary Strangers and we'll be your hosts for this evening. My name's Rue. And my name's Tom. Tonight we are celebrating all things science, technology, engineering, arts and maths, a.k.a. STEAM. Luke Stella, you created this genius experiment called the STEAM Room. Tell us about what your covert mission was here. Yeah, I really just wanted to make scientists funny. I think anyone who sat through a lecture at uni or a boring science teacher in high school knows that even something as exciting as science can definitely be made mundane and dull, if not presented with the right enthusiasm, the right skill. But, you know, comedians are incredible at communicating, you know. And I was watching a comedy show at a pub and this comedian just walks on stage and they just say, how are you doing? And the whole crowd was hanging on the next word. They just wanted to know what was happening next, the way that they said it, the way they moved the body. And I was like, I wish my high school science teacher was like that. You know, I wish they could command a crowd that way. And then, yeah, the steam room was born. Our scientists are performing stand-up for you for the first time ever this evening. So basically I put out a um, call. I said, any scientist, if you already love presenting but you want to learn a few new skills... Why don't you try and spin some of your science stories into a four-minute tight stand-up comedy routine? So that was the challenge we put out, and we had quite a lot of applicants. They were game. Let's let them know mm. just how excited we are to see them perform. Let's make some noise, Factory Theatre! Now, the scientists turned stand-up comics you'll meet today weren't just thrown on the stage like at some kind of comedy hunger games. That'd be way too mean. They've been pulled away from their PhDs and PowerPoints and professorships. And yes, they have made themselves really vulnerable to do this, but by heading back to school first. Our scientists are experts in hydroponic plants, glow-in-the-dark mice, sexual cannibalism, and that's not even what they're talking about this evening. That's their B-list material. Rue Halwella and Tom Stevenson are the duo called Scary Strangers, and they've been running comedy and improvisation classes for the scientists. World-famous science communicator Dr Carl from the ABC has been part of it all too. And a warning, there will be some fruity language along the way. Growing up themes and some bleepable bits. Let's make some noise for our first act. So the stage is set. First up, there's a professional comedian performing. And then let's meet... Associate Professor Michelle Power, or as we like to call her, Professor M. Power! Give it up! (laughs) 
Hey, Michelle Power or Professor M Power, I think you're known as. <laughs> Aspro. <laughs> yes, that's right. Associate Professor M Power. Indeed. So you signed up for the Steam Room Challenge. Your day job in science is a whole lot of shite, I gather. It is indeed. It is indeed. So my career started out as a parasitologist. And so that means I do. I need faeces or guano, uh, wildlife poo, basically, to look at the parasite stages and to figure out what they're doing to the wildlife hosts. I love the polite science way of saying <laughs> shit. <laughs> Guano. There's feculence. There's feculence. stool. <laughs> I kind of like feculence. Stool. Yeah. stool. I've had a lot of first encounters of the fecal kind. And the first one that I can remember was with bear shit at Taronga Zoo. Very quickly in a bear pit, leaning on a ledge, I found shit. I'm like, whoa, did the coolest little shit shake ever. The shit flick. It's actually parasites that you're, are your obsession, aren't they? And, and we've all been really occupied with viruses making their way from animals to us. Hello, COVID. Mm-hmm. But you're actually interested in the opposite. Uh, yeah, I do a bit of both, actually. So, And it does extend beyond parasites. So we're actually thinking about co-infection and how multiple organisms, whether it be parasites or bacteria, interact with each other to actually drive virus emergence. So like what we've seen with spillover of COVID from wildlife. Yes, we do think about the opposite, and that's termed reverse zoonoses. So zoonoses is when an organism passes from an animal to a human, but we're also looking at how our organisms are moving back into wildlife. Okay, so has anyone ever heard of the Bristol stool chart? Yay, all right, okay. So for those that haven't, this is a chart that ranks poo on a scale of one to seven, okay? And you can think of it as the extent of constipation scale. But what the Bristol stool chart fails to do is to consider colour, okay? Now, I do work on poo, but I'm a parasitologist, so I work on the nasties in poo. And I'm particularly interested in the importance of colour and how that might be used to diagnose parasites. So it's pretty important to have colour here. And this is where Julux steps in. (laughs) Move over paint swatches, poo swatches. Rue, Rue Hawala, you're a comedian, an improviser, a teacher, a producer, a drag king, all the things. So you basically had to teach these these scientists to be funny. Being funny or like finding the way to shape their stories into a comedy format. I thought that they were all going to be really shy and... Yellow fever. I thought I'd really have to kind of like pull them out of their shells. Roundworm red. But then they all rocked up and they were so beautiful and warm. And tangerine tapeworm. And energetic and willing to learn. If it's worth doing, it's worth Dulux. I want to hear more about that, Michelle. So what was it like when you walked into that room that first time or first few times? Yeah, it's interesting because I can be a bit of a character. But I think usually with people that I'm very comfortable with, and I guess if you've seen us, I'm probably the, well, maybe not the grandma of the group. 
<laughs> Love a grandma. <laughs> but but I'm certainly not a PhD student. <laughs> She's the fun auntie. The yeah. fun <laughs> auntie. Oh, I think I probably took a little while to come out of my shell. In our very first workshop, we heard Michelle going, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can do this. And then to see her on stage on Wednesday night was so incredible. You were an absolute superstar. I was doing well up until about half an hour before, I think, and then it hit me and I'm thinking, what if I forget the lines? What if I trip over? What if I crap my pants? (laughs) (laughs) I'll be on theme, yeah. Well, you probably study it. Pop it in a test tube and look at the parasites. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, from bears to bats. So bats, fruit bats hang in trees by their feet, okay. Heads are down here, butts up here. They've got a problem, if they poo, it's going to run down into their mouth. And well, if you eat bat shit, you might die. And they know this, okay? So they've got the trick where they invert themselves and hang on with their little wing claws and then projectile poo to the ground below. So if you happen to be the arse pro under the trees trying to catch them, you just kind of end up with all this poo raining down on you. When I put this call out, you know, we had over 60 applicants. A lot of people were interested in doing it, but very few people above a level of a PhD student. But I was just so impressed. Michelle was already an incredible science communicator, does amazing work for our community. But on top of that, she said, no, I want to come and learn new skills and get more involved in this whole process. I try really, really, really hard to avoid human poo. And early in my career years, Professor V comes to me and says, I think my kid's got a parasite can I do a PCR? Now, just like a COVID test, a parasite PCR test only needs a small amount of poo, an incy-wincy sample, little dab. Professor V knows this, right? (laughs) But what do I get? Enough kitty shit for 500,000 PCRs. (laughs) And it comes to me in a Chinese takeaway container. So I'm looking at this container thinking, where's the fucking wonton soup? <laughs> oh, there it is. People put scientists in a box and I think people on one hand put us on a pedestal and say that we have to be very serious all the time and on the other hand people devalue scientists and they say you know they're disconnected from society, they don't know how to socialise, a stereotype of the you know virgin nerd at uni, you know, working in a lab somewhere socially is a really um, big stereotype. Oh, you've got to love the virgin nerd. Don't (laughs) undersell the virgin nerd. (laughs) Welcome back to the steam room. Natasha Mitchell with you inside the steam room on Science Friction this week. Now, this is a social experiment to turn seasoned scientists into stand-up comics. It's the brainchild of Luke Stella from the University of New South Wales a PhD student in astrobiology and founder of the science communication consultancy, Praxical, and he's subjected himself to his own experiment. He has been working tirelessly not only to make this event happen, but also doing groundbreaking research in his PhD in astrobiology 
and being an all-round beautiful human. Thank you so much for that introduction. It's actually really helpful being introduced as a researcher because people tell me I don't really present as a stereotypical scientist. <laughs> and you know, maybe they're right. I do look like someone who spent way more time in a drum circle down at Bondi Beach than doing any kind of research in a lab. Yeah, but look, by day, you're doing your PhD. You're basically spending your time hanging out in a hot spa, aren't you? Come on, admit it. <laughs> That's true. That is, I did pick my PhD to study hot springs because um, I love onsens, honestly. That was where it all started. I wanted to go to Japan and soak in some hot water. So, yeah. It's a tiny, trivial problem, isn't it? Like, you know, how all of life formed uh, on Earth. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I've, basically, I'm trying to figure out if hot springs played a role in the formation of life on Earth. So we're not trying to say that that's where it all formed or anything like that. We're just saying if hot bubbly water, a bit of muddy, you know, salty water mixing around helped a bit of RNA formed or a little lipid bubble that could make a cell wall eventually. And it's true. I do have a few stereotypical hippie traits. I care about the environment. I'm really into frisbees. I use a quartz crystal as deodorant. But other than that, I'm a very scientific person. But people still judge me on my appearance, and my van life look has got the better of me. Like, I've been asked more times if I'm selling weed than on my perspectives on non-enzymatic RNA polymerization. Part of it is going out into the field. Japan, I go to hot springs in the Himalayas, up in the north of India, I go to hot springs in New Zealand, and I try and study them and see how complex they are, how they can be mixing together. But then the real thing that I'm trying to understand is how we can replicate that in the lab. Because people are trying to make life in the lab, trying to recreate that origin of life process. But when they do that, it's in these very, you know, dull, boring glass tubes. There's no complexity there. There's no minerals there. It's all very dull, which wasn't what the origin of life would have been like. Because on the early Earth, four billion years ago, it would have been so messy. It would have been rocks splashing. There would have been lightning going around. It would have been gases in the air mixing in. So trying to bring the hot springs, trying to bring the field into the lab is a big part of my PhD. When I'm not out there down at Bondi Breach, slinging shackers to my bros, I'm actually doing my PhD in astrobiology. So astrobiology is all about using science to figure out if there is life on other planets, which... I have to admit, is the most drum circle equivalent of a PhD I could have possibly picked. <laughs> and it doesn't help that one of the founding fathers of astrobiology was the great Carl Sagan. Who we, yeah, live it up for Carl, yeah! <laughs> who we all know, despite his amazing work, is the patron saint for pseudo-intellectual stoners. Yeah, I was definitely <laughs> terrified. It was incredibly nerve-wracking. Oh, yeah, definitely. I present in schools and give talks at conferences all the time. You smash out your 10 minutes of your pre-memorized you know, memorized, um, script and then you're done and you get applause at the end, a few questions, that's it. It's all very polite, isn't it? All very polite and yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a monologue. But the thing that was horrifying about comedy was that you're always getting feedback constantly. Every single sentence, every single joke, every single pause is an opportunity for your audience to laugh and give you feedback. There's this dialogue between you and the crowd that you don't get in normal scientific presentations. And that's horrifying. So because of my research topic and my love for yoga retreats in the Byron Bay hinterlands, <laughs> I often find myself in spaces with people who have differing perspectives on science. And by differing, I mean sometimes f***ing bonkers. <laughs> and you might be asking me, you might say, Luke, if you're looking for a rigorous scientific conversation, 
maybe that astral plane sound healing meditation workshop isn't the best place to look for one. But then, you know, when people do laugh and you do get that feedback, it's incredibly liberating and exciting as well. And you kind of work with their audience or they laugh at one joke more than another. And then you pick up on that and you give them more of what they like. So it really is this dance between you and the audience. Yeah, it's exciting, it's brilliant. And it's a great form of communication. Like the other day I was chatting with my Arco yoga teacher and they asked me what I do. I told them I do astrobiology. And they just go, oh my God, I'm a Gemini. <laughs> I can't believe you're doing your whole PhD in astrology. That is so Aquarius of you. <laughs> You've got to help me out. My boyfriend and I have been a mess since the Venus retrograde. <laughs> this is a great learning opportunity. And after I you know, talked to her about what astrology means to her, she asked me on my perspective. And I said, hey, I'm sorry, but I don't actually know how the backwards rotation of a space rock made you cheat on your boyfriend. <laughs> but did you know the surface of Venus is over 400 degrees Celsius? <laughs> how do you help them tap into their comedic self? Because comedy's kind of a, an instinct, isn't it? It's, a, it's an intuition almost. And some people just ain't funny. I don't believe that's true. <laughs> um, so improv is a really great tool for being able to develop those active listening, being present, uh, communicating and presentation sort of skills. So the brief that Luke provided us with was very much about getting them into their bodies, learning how to present and communicate in a really entertaining way, giving them different tools to help them get their stories out. And then once they had chosen their topics, then we did the work of refining them into stand-up comedy. Give us some examples of the sorts of things that you get people working with. Um, there's a whole range of things. Uh, one of the things that we did was telling a story completely in gibberish, uh, which is a really... <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> you mean like that? <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> I'm really, it was really profound, wasn't it? What I said. <laughs> Coming up next, we have Anastasia Shavrova. She is a PhD candidate who hosts her own science podcast called Boiling Point. Check it out. And she loves kitty cats. Welcome to the stage. Put your hands together for Anastasia Shavrova. I am a PhD candidate at UNSW and I study evolution of reproduction and mating. And I'm also a science communicator and apparently comedian on the side. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're doing your PhD on the biology of sex and uh, conflict. What are you up to? So I study um, extreme mating behaviours uh, between animals. Specifically, I look at arachnids. Spider sex. Yes, yes, spiders. Oh. It, it, I mean, it tends to be the most extreme with, you know, sexual cannibalism. One eats the other, yeah? Yeah, I figured, you know, it's hilarious that I study it in arachnids, considering I came to Australia with extreme arachnophobia. <laughs> no. Yeah. I was actually raised Slavic Orthodox Christian, and when you put the word Orthodox in front of a religion, it's typically going to be really strict. Uh, when you put the word Slavic in front of a religion, you know it's going to be fucking strict. <laughs> And probably with some vodka. I, I love to perform. I grew up singing in front of people. And for some reason, improv yeah. really just put me in a different shy state. Like even my friends, you know, will categorize me as an extrovert. And this was the first time that I was like, I feel 
extremely shy and uncomfortable in this situation. Vulnerable even. So vulnerable. Oh, interesting. And that's because typically when I perform, it's something, you know, if it's a song or, you know, a speech or whatever, it's always memorized, right? Mm. But with improv, they're like, okay, Anastasia, now, you know, pretend you're at a job interview, but you're really angry about it. Okay, now you're really sad about it. Okay, now start with this word. And And it was just very overwhelming, but it really does make you think on your feet a lot better. So I loved it, you know, after you kind of get used to it a little bit more, but it was definitely a very weird and scary situation to be in. So because of this, my whole childhood, I was told how virginity is the purest form for a human. So despite all of that, I now study the evolution of sex. Thank you. And I study really important topics such as blue balls and how to cure them. Wow, how dare you? I just told you I study important things. Okay, of course I don't study that. I'm a sex scientist, not a sexologist. Okay, it's different. I get a PhD for my kinks. What can you learn about the evolution of sex and reproduction and conflict from a spider? I use it for, like, to an evolutionary basis because they can reproduce so quickly. I will manipulate certain things, like I will let the female win over several generations and see what, how the male will try to kind of win this tug of war that they have between the sexes. But as a sex scientist, I can tell you humans have some of the most boring sex lives, okay? Across the animal kingdom, other animals will build each other nests and give gifts for each other and even dance sexually for each other. I have been in three long-term relationships. I have yet to have a man dance erotically to gain my attention. The best I get is a cheesy pickup line and maybe a dick pic if I'm lucky, but it's good for research, so. You know, the battle of the sexes is a very real thing and sex doesn't come without selfishness from the other sex. Arachnids just happen to be the most selfish for the female bias. (laughs) You let the female win. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if we do take sexual cannibalism, let's say I always have the female eat the male. And then over several generations, what can the male evolve against the female to try and gain back an advantage? Because obviously he doesn't want death. Um, so, you know, he might. how is he it depends going? how kinky he is, I guess. I mean, that's, that's very true. <laughs> I can't speak for the spiders of the world, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, you know, I've taken a survey and I can tell you most of them don't want to die. <laughs> Are you making interesting observations about what that, how they evolve in response to this threat? Yes. In one of my study species, the mites, I actually have the male winning. And what I find is that the female will manipulate things through paternity. So she won't have him father as many of her eggs or, you know, she'll have more daughters. Oh, it's wild. Can you learn a lot from spider sex about human sex? Uh, no, not particularly. You can learn. <laughs> I, last time I checked, we don't sexually cannibalize. <laughs> I could be wrong. <laughs> Let's not um, go there. Yeah. <laughs> but you can learn a lot on an evolutionary scale about how, you know, some extreme behaviors could lead another sex to co-evolve or counter-evolve. There are some similarities, but you can't anthropomorphize you know, the things that you find in animals directly into humans. So it's safe to say I prefer to study animals over humans. That's because there's way less drama, more exciting sex lives. And if I watch humans have sex, I'm a pervert. But if I watch animals have sex, I'm a scientist. Thank you, everybody. You know, science and communication is going to be critical going into the future and now. 
and to know that there's new ways of engaging and what Luke's doing and the capacity that the group has had, it's, it's absolutely amazing. It kind of gives faith in, in the next generation of scientists. There were so many scientists coming up to us after the show who were inspired to try improv and wanting to be part of the program. Scientists can be comedians, comedians can be scientists and we're all um, part of the same pot, which is great. In comedy, the audience is another person that you talk to. It's not the person that you talk at. And typically with science, with lecturing, you know, when I teach, I feel like I'm talking at the students. But now, you know, now I'm going to take that and now I'm going to have more of a conversation with the students. And I feel like students appreciate that more so because mm. that's how they're going to learn, right? They're going to feel like they're a part of the process rather than being spoken at. You know, and I think if we can start getting scientists and researchers thinking about that dance of the audience, that exchange of the audience, you're together on this learning experience rather than this top-down approach, the research does say that that's a better way to do it. Do you see yourself as being regulars on the comedy circuit? I'd, I'd give it another go. <gasps> There's definitely some comedy careers <laughs> in the works for some of these guys, seriously. Was the science communication effective? Huh. That's maybe um, for someone... Room. Was it mission accomplished? What, as, as a non-scientist, what do you? What's your view? Yeah. Successful experiment, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Please give it up for Luke Stella and Inspire New South Wales. This event wouldn't have been possible without them. Ah, I love it. Big thanks to Luke Stella from the University of New South Wales, Rue Halwella from Scary Strangers, Michelle Power from Macquarie University, Anastasia Shavrova from the University of New South Wales, to sound engineer John Jacobs and to the team at the Factory Theatre. You can find me on Twitter at Natasha Mitchell or email me on the Science Friction website where you'll find more information about today's show. And uh, be sure to tell others about the podcast. I'll catch you next week. Keep laughing. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.